This is the Baywatch Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are seeing Jesus engage the act of healing in new ways. Yeah. This one had a, uh, right at the beginning, it had a, a consideration, parent, viewer discretion advised warning on the beginning of this episode. A little content warning about the first scene. Yep, well warranted. But I suppose that means we should probably blow that spoiler horn. Yeah, so we're starting off. It's uh, we get the uh, subtitle two weeks earlier, so we're jumping back a little bit in time, and we see two people rushing down a street at night, hurrying somewhere. They seem to be going to a doctor. Uh, we see all kinds of blood all over the place. Um, turns out the person who's hurt is Eden, and uh, she seems to be having a miscarriage or something is going on. Uh, we didn't know she was pregnant at this point. Um, yeah, we didn't know what was going on, but it's not a good situation for sure. And, uh, you know, she's, she's pretty upset about it as you, as you would expect. Yeah. I, you know, this was, I've just become, I've been in ministry long enough that I've come to realize how many people struggle with the trauma and the tragedy and the grieving of miscarriage. And because of the nature of it, it's not something we talk about much. It's not something that people want to necessarily bring up. And that's there. I mean, that is totally understandable. Um, but because of that, it becomes this thing that can, you don't realize how many people have experienced it and gone through it. So not only was the viewer discretion warning at the beginning of the episode warranted, the scene itself is just, I know for so many, um, uh, it's it, for some, I'm sure it's gonna be triggering and traumatizing and for others, it'll just be meaningful in other ways because those are things that they've experienced. So don't have a lot of commentary, uh, in that, uh, necessarily other than just a recognition of, I feel like the, I feel like the church sometimes is too flippant in the way we just kind of deal with those stories in the scripture or forget how prominent of an experience that is in the church. So I always like to kind of check myself and catch myself in that moment and go, yeah, this is this is a scene. And I think this does rebut my comment in our previous episode uh, where I theorized that maybe they did the black and white because of the animal sacrifice. I, I was thinking about that when <laughs> clearly, you said it. So. <laughs> clearly they are not afraid to show uh, blood in this series. So yes. Oh man. Yeah. And like Maggie and I have, uh, experienced miscarriage a couple of times and that experience has mostly been on Maggie. It, it was not nearly as dramatic as, as this. I know that like for us, it was pretty early in both cases, Yeah, but yeah, I've, I have friends who have, have gone through, uh, worse situations and even, um, to the point of like a stillbirth, yeah. which I cannot, yeah. It's on. Oh man, yeah it it destroys me just thinking about it. Yeah, like I I can't comprehend it. Cons- considering how hard it was. Yeah, when when it was so early and and there was almost no almost no signs. Like Maggie would feel the signs, but like externally, like there was just nothing. Yeah, and I and there's a part of me that's like, man, should we be unpacking this for this episode? And yet. And yet I feel like 
this conversation right now is helping me relate to this character, like what Eden is going to be carrying through this whole season. Like she's struggling and this whole conversation gives a lot of context and a lot of opportunities to empathize with um, just the weight of that struggle and how dramatic that is and would be for somebody like her. And considering how much blood is going on, you would think that she would be concerned yeah. Oh, yeah. about her Absolutely. own safety at that point. But all she asks about is if her baby's okay. Yep. Which I think totally checks out, but also like, wow. Yep. That that's oof. well, so then we do have the credits, and I don't really necessarily feel like I mean, I don't know. Did they go into they went into the normal music for the credits, right? I I do believe so, yeah. I think so, yeah. I don't know. I feel weird about it. I don't think I'm gonna put the music in this episode. <laughs> Because then as soon as we get out of that, we, we go to Neely, uh, lying sure, in bed, right. Nicole's yep. there. She, you know, she makes a comment that like, you know, she wasn't breathing when they came in, the doctor's there. Um, so I guess, you know, when, at the end of the last episode, when they found her, like they found her at just the right time because she wasn't like, she would have she would have died if it had been any longer, basically. Yeah. That's how, that's how I saw it. So the doctor, um, he's like, well, I, you know, her heart is weakened. I don't think I can do anything more about this. He asked Jairus to step outside of the room says, you know, we should probably start making arrangements for this. He mentions that there's a, you know, I mean, I, I don't think this is a surprise to Jairus. I think this is telling us what this situation is, but he says there's a requirement for at least two flutes and one whaler. And Jairus is like, just don't, don't do anything now. I have an idea. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, when they hear about you pay these mourners to come in, like a lot of us in our culture have this really negative reaction to that. And the chosen did a decent job when we see them later in the episode, uh, they kind of had like a, uh, I don't know, like an aura, a stigma, but not, not nearly as bad as they could have. Like in the Jewish culture, this is a part of how you facilitated grief. And I don't think in our culture <laughs> we have any right um, or or authority to claim that we have mastered the corner on grieving. We're like one of the worst cultures at navigating grief. We like we rush people to the memorial service. We busy people with plans. We have a couple potlucks and then we just desert people like the Jewish world has a process of mourning, and that process begins with the initial days, first seven days at the tomb, and those initial days with paid mourners. The paid mourners are not there to put on a show. The paid mourners are brought in because they, their job, just like a funeral home director in our world, their job is to facilitate grieving and mourning. They know what songs to play. They know what prayers to pray here. They know how to answer questions that 95% of the time you're not asking. You don't, you don't necessarily find yourself in the company of death all the time, hopefully. And so these are people that do. Like it's their job to help people facilitate. What do I, what do I pray now? What do I sing now? What do I do now? And that's their job. So when it comes off to us like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that Jews in that day had two flutists and a and a and a whaler. 
Yeah, because the f- the flutes and the wailers facilitate mourning and grief, and and we we're just not used to that. We don't facilitate mourning. We kind of act like mourning is a thing should be kind of be done done over in the corner, get it over as quickly as possible. But they have vehicles to facilitate healthy grieving, and so that's that's the the background behind that. Mm, definitely some lessons for us to learn in that. I think. Um, so then we are back with Eden and she's making some food. Simon walks up next to her, starts packing up some food, kind of seems like he wants to say something or he's waiting for her to say something. Um, and then, uh, you know, as he's leaving, he's got his food packed up as he's leaving. He uses the line that he learned from Gaius and it totally falls flat. <laughs> Eden's almost more confused than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, poor Simon still, still clueless at this point, which part of me is like, why doesn't she just share it with him? But like, yeah, you know, she's, she's been in that situation for two weeks on her own. And now it makes sense. The episode prior when she was like, I thought in the last episode, she was just trying to spend time with Peter, but she was probably trying to spend, I mean, obviously spend time. Like she was trying to create the time for some of that conversation, and Peter was tired. He wanted to take a nap. And now he's busy. And now the home's full. And and just that. And, and now all of a sudden things are starting to make sense. We have some context for uh, where she's at. Yeah. So then we're um, in Zebedee's home. We see James and John. They're arguing about uh, Thomas and John and that relationship. And James is still kind of irritated about stuff. And uh, Zebedee comes in and asks about... Rayma and then Mary and Tamar and he's you know trying to trying to figure out his ideas uh, on how he's going to make the olive thing work. Zebedee asks if if the if the women can all be trusted, and James is like, well, they follow Jesus. I think that's enough to trust them. Um, which I I don't know. Like, is that like how? I, I guess it would probably be different depending on who you are and what your experiences have been. But it, it was just interesting to me that uh, it wasn't. Because I always come from like a default of trust. Like I'm going to trust you unless you show me a reason why I shouldn't. Um, but I do realize like that's not that's not for everyone today. I just wonder like what would it have been like for them? Like would they have automatically trusted because they're not Romans? Yeah. Or like, yeah. Yeah. And for them, they probably that statement's probably is true for them in the first century in that context. It's certainly not true anymore. Uh, so much so that we've maybe even we, we wrestle with the danger of overcorrecting because nobody trusts. In fact, people might trust Christians, people who follow Jesus the least. Um, and 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 that's I mean, that's been that's warranted on some level. That's the social accountability for how we've failed our mission. But back back then, in those earliest days of following Jesus, it's certainly how it should be. It's certainly how it ought to be. And I think it probably was something you could have relied on in those in that first century or two with Jesus followers certainly over the centuries as the movement has become something wholly other than something you die for something that really tests your resolve but it's almost more socially convenient or I don't know. We just don't engage faith on the same levels that they did for better or for worse. Um, That's not a wholesale critique, but definitely not something that would be true today or that I would encourage (laughs) necessarily us to strive after today. But it certainly makes sense in there. And when I say not strive after, we should certainly strive after being that kind of a people. I'm not sure that would be the 
proverbial wisdom I would live by at this point in our history. <laughs> sure. So then Zebedee shares that he sold the boat. Everyone's a little like, oh my gosh. <laughs> he gives this uh, speech about the legacy and how, you know, his father did his work with the boat and waited for the Messiah. And then uh, he did the same thing. And now he's kind of old. And and uh, John's like, you're not old. What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, but, you know, like we've we've got what we've been waiting for. He's called you like you guys are doing something new. I'm going to do something new, too. Yeah, I like I like that. It was. Yeah, I just when he started selling the business, I'm like, man, why would you? Is there more money to be made? And it's probably my American mind at work there. But he's trying to support <laughs> the ministry. So there's like there's all these elements that all of a sudden when I heard him give this speech, I'm like, you know, I could relate to that. Um, I think there was another part of me where my. My alarms were going off of like, this is the, this is the dichotomy I'm always trying to speak against, which is there's holy, there's holy work, like there's ministry work, and then there's soil work, like fishing. And if we take that point and extrapolate it out of its Im immediate context of Zebedee, I think it's a really destructive, really damaging point to be made. Because um, that's not the way that I would want to see the world, that there's holy ministry work. And then there's just kind of like everybody else's job. Um, but in Zebedee's particular context for him, like he he has this opportunity to do something in relation to the person of Jesus who happens to be present, <laughs> like literally and physically in a way that that the you know post resurrection we now see the entire world differently and in Zebedee's context you know that that Jesus that Christ figure is present with them and he's reordering his life according to that reality that part i don't mind so much at all um but i think that was where my brain was like doing somersaults yeah yeah definitely important to remember uh that his situation is noticeably different than ours in, the, in that uh concrete way um, I do, I do like how he, as he was like encouraging, uh, his boys and what they were doing and like reassuring them about what he's doing. Like he brought them in close. He's holding them. Like there's all of this, like, yes, it, it wasn't like this distant, like he's standing back, like, Hey, I sold the boat. I'm going to go do my own thing. Like, right. Like w I'm doing this because, you know, this is going to bring us closer together than, than ever before. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's all been, and I, we've seen it playing out over multiple episodes. So it's like, it's not surprising, but it's like, Hey, I've thought this out. I know what I'm doing. And, and this is, this is going to be a good thing for us. Not like, a you know, don't be disappointed that I sold the boat. Like right. I was just doing that while we waited and now we're not waiting. So now I'm doing something different. Yep. So then we see Nathaniel and Thaddeus, they're carrying water through the desert and Nathaniel says that he saw Simon and Gaius together, and they're talking about that. Uh, and then they spot some blood on the ground, and they follow that trail to Veronica. They they initially think she's maybe dead, and um, you know she wakes up as as they start calling out to her. And and Thaddeus is concerned, wants to call a doctor for her, and she's like, "No, I've already done that." And Nathaniel's like, "Well, you know, maybe Jesus could help." She's not interested at first, but as they begin to leave, she asks some more questions, realizes uh, that it's the same guy that she heard about from the healing at the pool of Bethesda. And um, Veronica's 
totally on board. And she's like, I only, I only need to be able to touch his garment, which that, I mean, that was a fun little, like, yeah. And they, for her to, yeah. I mean, they don't actually bring out the text behind it, but no fun, fun for her to like have this faith that the disciples are like, eh, are you sure about that? That seems a little, yeah, they, they don't bring out the text. They do hint at it. And personally, I'm not like frustrated at the chosen. I, I personally would have really wanted them to make that connection for the sake of an outsider knowing their Bible, but instead they just kind of like, like tie it to like gossip. And I, well, I heard from the guy at the pool, I just feel like it would have been so much more powerful because he does say, she says, I just need to touch his garment. And it's Nathaniel or somebody that says, that's just a, that's just a superstition. And that superstition is based on text. And I can't remember what we even talked about in the podcast. If we even talked about this in the podcast, Brent, I don't know, but there was a Jewish superstition based on Malachi two, which says the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And the word for wings is kanafot. And kanafot is uh, the same word for corners. Well, it's on the corners of the prayer shawl and the corners of your garments, according to Numbers 15, where you put the zitzit, the zitziot, the tassels. And so there was a superstition that part of the way that we'll know that Messiah is here is that there will be miraculous healing in his in his prayer shawl, in his talit, in his zitziot. And so, I mean, they're making the connection. They obviously make the connection later in the scene, which I'll talk about when we get there. But the like the disciples reference the superstition. They don't make the direct connection to Malachi, but that's where the superstition comes from. I just wish they would have connected her knowledge. I don't believe this just because some guy told me about it at the pool. I believe this because I know my Bible and I put faith in the text. Like that's what I wish they would have done, but they they tie it to a testimony that she's heard at the pool, which has its own value and its own merit. But dang it, um, that's such an important part of the story for me, and uh, missed it. Yeah, I'm not sure that um, it was the testimony of the healing at the pool or if it was just the sure just somebody that told about the, the fact that like oh it's that guy okay if it's that guy then i believe he can do uh what i'm what i'm thinking of but i'm pretty sure we did talk about that before marty in episode 103 titled healing in his wings oh i think you're yeah i totally yeah i totally <laughs> think you're right so there you go we can link that episode but she doubles down on it later when she does meet jesus and he asks her see i'll, I'll talk about when i get there i'm so frustrated by a missed opportunity yeah yeah I'm just like oh i would have written that scene differently and i love the scene don't get me wrong but there was that one line where i'm just like oh missed it mm-hmm. yeah so then we are over with uh, Judas and Mary and Tamar, and they are helping Zebedee buy the olive grove. They meet the son of the previous owner, and uh, Judas makes some negotiations with him to have him help them out uh, because the the trees have not been tended to uh, because his father got sick, and I guess that's why they had to sell it or whatever. I don't know, but um, the son knows what he's doing, and so they make a negotiation for him to to show them the ropes, help them get things back in order. And uh, yeah, seems like they've they've got what they need to, to make this happen. I like how they use the characters to lean into their strengths. Judas and Tamar have such a, uh, a similar 
uh, gift or context that they're bringing to that, which I just love because Mary is so insistent that we keep checking with Judas whenever Tamar has an idea. Um, but they both have this business, like this business savvy, like Tamar in the last episode when she was talking to Zebedee about olive oil, she has this very, it's not just that she appreciates worldly things and consumer goods. She also has this knowledge of how you can make this work in the world and how you can make money. And like, she's always making those connections. And even though at this point it's completely irritating Mary, um, like they're playing that into Tamar's character very well. And here, Judas, somebody who's very good at business, who's very good at making deals because of his pat, like here he is working the field. And I just like how they've worked that into the characters and they allow the characters to play into their strengths, not in a crooked way, not in a sinful way, just letting them be them and showing how it would have brought something positive to the table in the Havara. Yeah, I, I definitely appreciate the, I mean, we see this in, in a lot of situations where it's like the, all these disciples have different personalities. You know, they've they've shown that the they all have different backgrounds. They have different experiences and strengths and weaknesses. And, yep. and we get to see that play out, you know, in, in full color, in motion, Marty. It's great. Yep, yep. Uh, so then we are back with Simon and Gaius. They're actually placing stones in the cistern. Uh, and they, I think it was like a high five or something. They yeah, they did something, and then was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> so they both kind of step back. Yeah, guys is like, you're probably not supposed to touch me. <laughs> uh, so Simon, he's trying to explain how some of these things work. Um, he does eventually go on and share that Gaius's line did not work on Eden, and Gaius is like, well, did you, did you mean it? He's like, well, I mean, sure. He's like, well, if you don't even know what you did, how can you mean it? He's like, well, I tried to, I tried to sound like I meant it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. well, that's not going to work. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, uh, then Gaius, uh, shares some stuff about the children in his home and he's kind of dancing around the language on that a little bit. Simon makes some comments on it and definitely hits a nerve and Simon just kind of like, or, or sorry, Gaius just kind of shuts down and like, it just starts working more furiously and kind of ignores Simon and Simon's like, what just happened? Yeah. There's a couple of things I love about the humanity of Gaius's character here. And I mean, one of the, one of it is that he's doing the work along with Peter. He's not commanding it be done. He doesn't have his Roman paraphernalia on ordering people around. Uh, that's the humility of the Gaius character that I've just come to appreciate. The fact he's shoveling, sweating, dirty, doing just as much of the work as Peter times even more. <laughs> uh, I have really appreciated. And yeah, I did like how they, they're communicating, not just that Gaius has a servant, but that he really truly cares for this servant. And a, I think that's warranted in the text. I think you see that care later. If we, I mean, spoiler alert, we kind of know where that story is headed here soon. Um, but the word that's used in the gospels for the servant is a very intimate word for servant. In fact, some people have made probably too much out of the word that's being used for servant because it's the word that would be used when you have your, um, like we've talked before about how in the Roman world you would have like a boy that you mentor. And we talked about pederasty and some of the gross expressions, oppressive, abusive, particularly sexual exploitation of that role. Um, I don't think that word has to I don't think you have to assume that when that 
word for a slave or a servant is used, but it is the term for a much more, it's not just an, a fringe marginal servant of a household. It's somebody who is a part of the family, um, in either an exploitive way or in the Gaius case as the way that they're portraying it, I think appropriately. So, um, I think it, it would have been a much more, this isn't just a random slave. This is somebody that this, this guy cares a lot about. So I think that's very warranted historically in the Greek language and in the gospel text itself. Yeah, definitely. Jumping over to Yusuf, he's stopping in with Jairus and Jairus is furiously searching for something. Um, Jairus realizes that Yusuf might actually be able to find Jesus and take Jairus to him. Yusuf says he only knows where to find some of the disciples. And so they, they do go, they find Judas, uh, who's in the house and, uh, Jairus just, I mean, he's, as soon as he knows that this guy is connected to Jesus, he just pleads with him to help in any way. Yeah. And Judas is pretty resistant and fits the, fits the MO of, of kind of how they're trying to protect. Sometimes they don't even know where Jesus is. Even if they did, they wouldn't tell him. And yet they've got a pretty, pretty convincing between Yusuf and, and Jairus. I think Judas can see the authenticity and, and uh, says, all right, well, I, I don't know, but let's go see if we can figure it out. So then we see Z come in uh, and tell Mary and Tamar that Jesus is back. And so uh, then we see Jesus in Simon's home uh, with little James, Andrew, Matthew, and Philip. And Jesus is thanking Eden for some of the food. And uh, he's starting to experience some of her frustrations uh, more directly. And he's kind of considering what's going on with her. Uh, Philip asked Jesus about fasting, why he hasn't asked them to fast and says like, you know, this could be you know, if everybody else is asking their disciples to fast and you're not like, what does that say? You know, I thought what was interesting in that was when I read the gospels and it says the disciples of John came and asked Jesus in my mind, I, and I don't even think this is wrong, but in my mind, I've always assumed and pictured like John the Baptist's disciples from like another Havarat, like John the Baptist has his disciples. What I've never considered is that it was the disciples of John who are a part of Jesus's Havarat that are asking like the scene, like it's, it's, is it, is it Philip that asked that question? Like it's one of John's actual disciples that is now a disciple of Jesus, but there I've never considered reading the text that way. I don't know if that's as warranted as it is, but, but I, I just definitely, I was like, Oh yeah, sure. He's a disciple of John asking Jesus about fasting. Sure. It's a unique way of putting that together. Yeah. Great, great grab on that detail. So Jesus asked Eden if she has any wine fermenting and then asked James to grab a wine skin there, uh, talking about the, the qualities of the wine skin and everything else. Jesus kind of, you know, explaining his analogy out a little bit more. And then he looks at the disciples and they'll look around at each other. And Andrew's like, uh, I don't understand what you mean. I think none of us do. And, uh, <laughs> then we're then we see outside Yusuf and Jairus uh, spot more followers of Jesus and follow them into the house and uh, presumably still in the middle of this wineskin conversation um, they barge in and Jairus falls down before Jesus tries to explain himself uh, starts to share a little bit about his daughter asks for him to heal her 
And uh, Jesus is like, you don't even know me and you like, you believe this much. And so Jairus is like, well, Jesus says, well, go ahead and take me uh, to her. And then everyone files out of the house. Yeah. And they're building this theme in this episode and really I'm sure throughout, but what I love about this episode is the, the emphasis and the premium put on faith. Like here's this guy that has faith and you all know me, all these people, and they're all struggling. And that's not to discredit their struggle. It's not to trivialize Eden's struggle or any of those things. But you, but they, all these people know me personally, and they struggle to believe and trust. And you don't even know me, and you trust. And obviously, that's a beautiful point in the Gospels. Um, I think we get a large portion of that. I hope that we wrestle all the way through with what that would potentially look like in our own context, in our own culture. If we were to meet somebody that doesn't do all the stuff and doesn't go to church and doesn't like they don't belong to community and they don't believe in the four pillars of Bema and they don't know anything about context, but they (laughs) believe that Jesus can make a difference. Like, would Jesus look at that person and be like this, everybody, this person gets it. They don't listen to podcasts. They don't go to church. They don't have a small group and they understand who Jesus is. Like, I hope we wrestle with what that would look like in our own culture, not just back then with these people who didn't know the, you know, the actual physical Jesus. Um, I find that to be convicting. Well, and I think specifically Jesus says, you've never even met me before. Correct. Uh, and then Jairus turns around and says, yeah, but I know you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she said that's the second time he said that too. Yeah. The first time he said, Uh, He said it like right after he came in, it was a little more like hurried and casual. And then he was a little more intent on it the second time when Jesus, you know, tries to say that. I think that's what, yeah. Yep. What locks it in. So, uh, then we're back with Simon and Gaius. They're applying some mortar talking about their, uh, respective religions. Love the connection to broken cisterns. I freaking love it. So great. Yeah. Simon brings up Jeremiah too. Uh, Gaius is asking some more questions and, uh, guys is talking about like the Pantheon. Simon is like, I can't believe you have to deal with all those different, different, uh, deities and all those sacrifices. And guys is like, well, you only need to make sacrifices based on what you want, which is, yep. uh, I think probably an intentional, <laughs> uh, decision on, on that language. Um, but then a big crowd starts moving by Simon and guys, uh, you know, jump in to see what's going on. Uh, the street is very crowded at this point. Little James gets knocked over. Um, Thaddeus and Nathaniel come in. They have Veronica. Um, and they tell her to stay to the side for a moment. And Veronica starts to call out to Jesus and then starts to uh, starts to bleed at that point. And she's just like, no, like this can't be happening now. But she's, she's determined she's going to go touch him in spite of this uh, or touch his garment specifically. So, um, then we have that man from the tent that she washed clothes for earlier spots her and, you know, does his thing, (laughs) calls over Yusuf. Yusuf is like, Hey, we can help you just not now. And then she just jumps into the crowd and pushes through, um, and kind of like, I I don't know if she gets knocked over or she trips or whatever, but she falls down and like just barely grabs his tassel. They did exactly what the chosen has always done, Brent, which is they take the story that I can't stand and they beautifully combine it with the story that I believe in and they redeem both of them. 
<laughs> so I've always been taught that she like dives through the crowd and she's reaching out. And the only thing she can touch is the fringe of the garment. And I've always made a huge point that she's intentionally touching the fringe of the garment because of Malachi too. And they did both. <laughs> yep. Beautifully done. I appreciate how strategically they take everybody's pictures of how this works and they blend it together into a scene. It, it honestly is astonishing to me how they're able to do that and do that well yeah so she sits up and kind of feels like something might be different but i think she's still like not totally sure jesus stops he's looking around it's kind of funny because there's a crowd like yeah the crowd around them like makes this open circle in the middle and jesus is standing there and she's sitting there on the ground and he's looking around and like i mean i think obviously we all we all know what happened we all know who touched him uh, including Jesus, but he is, he's giving her an opportunity to like get out of there if she doesn't want to draw attention to herself or whatever. Um, but she, she does, you know, end up sitting up and explaining herself, admitting that she's the one who touched him. Uh, she mentions the man from the pool. And then just this beautiful moment where Jesus is restoring her identity uh, he's affirming her faith. He is declaring her clean to those uh, in the crowd who are watching. And then um, I love that they did this because I thought for a moment, like, oh yeah, she's healed, but he's not gonna he's not gonna touch her because she would still be unclean at that point because like she hasn't washed or whatever. But but then at the end, before he actually stands up, he he takes his hands and and cradles her face yes and um i was just oh man i was a mess yeah <laughs> when that, when he did that. so many things and and you've pointed out so many of the, her cleanliness the social stigma i mean yousef's even like man she was bleeding a long time like if you want us to take her and make sure and Jesus like sternly just says to yousef like no she is clean you know end of story and and uh yeah there's just so many things i love the way that he gets down he doesn't stand over her. He, he and his character has done this routinely throughout the chosen. He gets down to where she is. She's lying on the ground. He kneels down. The way that he looks at her, the way that he talks to her, um, uh, pulls dignity out of her, restores her humanity. I'm nobody's daughter. Yes, you are. Look at me. You're my daughter. Um, I love the question. I love the question. Why did you touch my garment? I thought they were going to nail it. And, and she said, well, I thought that's all, uh, that's all I would need to touch. And I heard the story of what you did. And that's how big my faith is rather than the line for me would have been because it's promised in your scriptures or she, if she would have quoted Malachi two, that's what I wanted to come out of her mouth. That's the only part of the scene that we, that we missed, but I loved, I love the connection that's then made of it's not my garment that did it. It's your faith. And, and this, again, this theme in this episode of the place of, of faith. And as we say in, in Bema trust, like she's trusting the story. She's trusting like that's faith. Faith is trust in action. Trust is faith in action. Those words in, in the Hebrew are, are connected. They're interchangeable. Faith and trust, depending on which words we're talking about anyway. But those ideas as we use them are, and so that idea of faith, I love as it fits with Bema, because we're always talking about trusting the story and the place of trust over fear. And these are great, great examples of what that looks like. Yeah. 
So at that point, Jesus gets up. Uh, he asked the crowd to disperse. He's like, you know, I promise I'll come back, but I've got some other things to do. He starts handing out assignments. He's going to take care of the crowd. Nathaniel and Thaddeus and Philip are going to watch over Veronica and make sure she's okay. And I, I think at least Mary um, is there as well and, and is kind of um, talking to her and whatever. And then he says, Simon, Big James, and John to join him. So, you know, there it is. Uh, Peter, James, and John. Yep. John, James and John being the brothers in yep. this situation. We've mentioned that previously. Yep. And it's in the scriptures, so I'm not going to argue. <laughs> Yep, yep. So uh, then they're getting close to Jairus' home, and they start to hear some flutes and some mourners. And Jairus is just kind of panicking. He can't believe he was too late. Uh, but Jesus assures him that Neely will be well. Um, and he kind of has to say that a couple of times. And then Jesus enters the house, tells all the mourners to stop. They laugh at him. Uh, there's, you know, a lot of tension there. Like, why are you laughing? Somebody's dead. And they're like, we're laughing because he says she's not, but she clearly is. And there's this other rabbi there. I can't, I don't know if we ever knew his name, but Akiva, that's Akiva, which I don't think they're trying to make it. I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, golly, it's Capernaum. Like it could just be Akiva as like, Oh, another Akiva. It's a common Hebrew name. But I mean, that is where Akiva's from. I don't know if they're making him the Akiva. If that's the case, unless they change his character, I really don't like that because Akiva is <laughs> the most pro Jesus aligned with Jesus. So maybe that character will have a change of heart and then I'm going to love, I'm going to absolutely love that storyline. If that's who they're making that, if they're making that out to be the Rabbi Akiva, uh, that's a big deal. But that's the, that was the name in the, in the, uh, the captions. Well, that would make him pretty old by AD 70. And I mean, he could, I, mean, I was looking at his age in there. I'm like, he's 30 or 40 was, uh, he's at least 30, probably more like 40, maybe even a little older in that scene. But I mean, that makes him 70, 80. So yeah, I mean, it's doable. It could be, it, it feels like an odd choice of name. If that's who you, if that's not who you're trying to make it out to be. So sure. I don't know. Sure. We'll see what they do. We'll see. Um, but eventually, Jesus gets everyone to go outside. Uh, Jesus comes into the room, approaches Neely. Um, he calls there. She's upset that Jairus was gone when all of this went down. Um, she's very concerned about what Jesus is doing. Um, Jesus pulls back the sheet. He kind of looks down, seems to be praying. He looks up to heaven. He smiles. And he kind of picks up her hand and whispers to her to wake her up and uh, you know, of course, the family is celebrating tremendously. The disciples are kind of staring in disbelief um, <laughs> because, you know, he's he's done all of these healings and these other things before. But as far as they were aware, has not raised somebody from the dead. Yeah. So this is a new a new level of healing. Yes, indeed. <laughs> if you can even call it healing. I don't yeah, know. If, if, right. Uh, it's, it's a whole new thing. So the disciples are there um, just like you know, jaws to the floor and Jesus, you know, looks at all of them like, don't tell anybody about this. Uh, it's not time for the kind of commotion this is going to cause. Don't even tell the other disciples about this at, at this point. Um, and then Jesus and Jairus, you know, have more directly a, a conversation about faith and, and hope uh, that others share that faith. And then they head outside to be 
accosted by the religious folk. Yeah. Well, right before that happens, we see Veronica outside and she is. Oh, sure. I forgot. Yeah. She's removing all of her extra clothing and uh, she had like ropes and all kinds of stuff tied up like that she was using to hide the blood. And she places that on some kind of fire. I don't know. It looked like she went into a building and it was just like a an oven kind of situation. Um, but either way, she she burns all that stuff and then she goes to wash in the sea. And then we see um, Jesus coming out and the so it, I guess it's Akiva, Akiva and Yusuf. I mean, Yusuf isn't really doing much. Akiva confronts Jesus about him being unclean and just like, well, what are we going to do about this? And and uh, ultimately, he's like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go take the disciples for a swim and we'll satisfy the washing requirement in the process of that. Yeah, I, I did love the line like, and what are you going to do? And he's like, I'll write a letter to the Sanhedrin. And Jesus is like, ah, a letter. Hmm. <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then again, I like, I like what the writers have done here because um, they... Like they've walked this line. If they say, if the writers make a scene where Jesus needs to be cleansed, you're going to tick off all kinds of Christians that don't agree with that concept. We've talked about it before. I would totally be aligned with that. I'd be all for it if Jesus goes and finds cleansing because that's what the law of Moses says. So they don't say he's not going to, but nor do they say he needs to. And so they kind of let this religious um, fervor and these uh, whatever, I hate the word use the word legalism, but that thing drive his decision, his decision to play by those rules. And so he does end up, and I just, I just love it all. Cause I think he would have done that. And I love the way that that scene ends when they all end up out there. It's just, it's just, it's, uh, I love the joy. I love how they're accomplishing the law of Moses and doing it in that same kind of the bridegroom is here spirit and mentality that he was talking about when he talked about fasting, like all of it. I just loved how they did that. It was great. It's kind of like the um, thing later with the temple tax where, you know, somebody asked Peter about it and Peter's like, oh yeah, yeah, we pay that. Of course. (laughs) Right. And it's like, Jesus was not on the way to pay that at that point. But once it, once it comes to light that, uh, you know, that Peter has said that and pointed it out, then, then he does actually follow through on it. So, and I've of the mind that he would have, I'm of the mind that he would have gone and cleansed himself. That's my personal take. Like, not that he wouldn't have, if it wouldn't have been pointed out, but he would have, even if it wouldn't have been pointed out, that's not necessarily what the chosen is portraying, but I like how they brought all of those options together. It was great. Mm Mm-hmm. The um, the water scene, I feel like, had a little bit of a Top Gun volleyball vibe going on. <laughs> Did not think of that, know, but goodness. All this, all this you know, jovialness, <laughs> this splashing around, near sunset lighting. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that was the influence for that scene, but I love the, I love the connection. And of course, you know. The the new Top Gun movie recently came out, and I watched the old one before it. So it's, maybe that's just maybe it's just because it's on the front of my mind. But uh, I, I I really enjoy that. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to watch that scene anymore without hearing. It's going to be great. Uh, so then to close out this episode, we have the camera, uh, backing up to reveal that Eden is watching everything that's going on here. Um, and her, her storyline does not come to a conclusion yet in this episode. 
uh, unlike Veronica and Jairus and his family. So correct. More to come for Eden. Yep. But that does it. Marnie, that's that's the episode. That's the episode. Pretty good spot. All right. Uh, you can go to BayamonestepShift.com to find the show notes. Check out episode 103 if you want to hear us talk a little bit more at length about uh, the healing in the wings situation. And um, that was a fun conversation. I, I mean, I think you summarized it well, but of course we... We talk a little more at length in our original verse-by-verse yeah. verse account of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, everything is there on the website. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast this week. We will talk to you again soon.